scripture comes from Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, and then 9 through 15. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality to strangers, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is the word of the Lord. 500 years ago this coming Tuesday, Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic monk, nailed 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, which at the time had only been open for eight years. His theses or statements were arguments against what he considered to be the corrupt sale of indulgences by the Catholic Church. He posted them in Latin because he wanted to start an academic debate. However, they were soon translated in German, and because of the recently invented Gutenberg printing press, copies quickly spread throughout Germany and Western Europe and ignited the Reformation. When I teach new member classes at Westminster, I often say that Luther never intended to start a Reformation or to break with the Roman Catholic Church, but that, but that his actions set off a series of political and economic and social forces that were waiting to be unleashed. The result was something similar to what happened to America in the 1960s. A lot of pent-up change affecting nearly all sectors of society coming virtually all at once. I then add that we Presbyterians enter the Reformation about 20 years later through John Calvin who was a French lawyer and layperson who published the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which sought to give intellectual order to this explosion that Luther had unleashed. Calvin's sense of order and orderliness has stayed with Presbyterians ever since leading to our sometimes self-deprecating title, God's Frozen Chosen. Now, like many Protestant congregations around the world today, we at Westminster are acknowledging this 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We're doing so with a service today built around the history and, and then with a choral presentation at 11 a.m. today of the Bach Cantata based on the best-known Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, whose words and music were written by Luther. 
In this sermon today, I want to simply share with you what the Reformation has come to mean to me as a Presbyterian pastor living in the 21st century. I hope that what you glean from this sermon will help you understand a little more about our church, a little more about the tradition in which we stand, and where your own faith fits or lives with tension with our tradition. So let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove, come kindle the flame of sacred love in these expectant hearts of ours. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. In Friday's Wall Street Journal, a historian named Joseph Lacotte, who teaches at an evangelical college in New York City, summarizes Luther's impact. Lacotte writes, Born into a German peasant family in 1483, Luther came to despise every form of spiritual elitism. He sought to replace rigid church hierarchies with the priesthood of all believers. The proposition that there are no qualitative differences between clergy and laity. We are all priests of equal standing, Luther wrote. Luther clearly believed, as I do, that our wearing these robes, that our standing behind this pulpit, that our serving the elements of bread and wine from this table do not lift Whitney or Patrick or Casey or me above you who attend here every Sunday or you who are here for the first time. The priesthood consists of all believers. This led Luther to a second affirmation, the doctrine of Christian vocation. According to Lacan, Luther dignified all legitimate work. Luther wrote, a shoemaker, a smith, a farmer, each has his manual occupation and work, and yet at the same time, all are eligible to act as priests or bishops. I know that in Washington we are often criticized for asking people we've just met, what do you do? Who do you work for? If we ask that question because we don't not do we don't do not know anything else to ask, our asking is innocent. If we ask it because we're trying, perhaps unconsciously, to determine if the person is worth any more of our time, then the question is pernicious. But behind the question may lie an awareness on our part that work is a way we serve God, express our faith, express who we are. And thus our interest in a person's vocation may be a genuine attempt to get to know them at a deep and fundamental level, perhaps even the level of a common faith a shoemaker, a smith, a farmer, all are priests and bishops. 
Lacan also points out that one of Luther's most subversive acts was to translate the New Testament into German, the language of the people. This effectively placed the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments into the hands of all Christians. Prior to that, the reading and interpretation of the Bible had been limited to the official teachings of the church. But Luther wrote, we must inquire about scripture of the mother in the home, the children in the street, the common man in the marketplace. According to Luther, the Bible belongs to the people, not to the church or the pope or the priest, or in our day, or in our day, to the preacher, the teacher, or the professor. The Bible is the people's book. And fourth, Lacant writes, Luther always elevated the individual believer armed with the Bible above any earthly authority. This was the heart of his defiance at the Diet of Worms. My conscience is captive to the word of God, Luther said. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Lacan said that Luther offered a spiritual bill of rights. Generations of reformers from John Locke through Martin Luther King Jr. would praise his achievement. 500 years later, his message of spiritual freedom still has power. In summary then, the priesthood of all believers, the doctrine of Christian vocation, the Bible is the people's book, and the right of individual conscience are hallmarks of the Reformation. They are the spiritual air in which we live and move and have our being. This 500th anniversary of the Reformation is worth celebrating. I now want to share with you a way that the spiritual freedom found in the Reformed tradition has become crucial to my own faith, teaching, and preaching. I attended Union Seminary in New York in the 1970s. And one of my teachers there was Dr. Christopher Morse, a theologian who visited Westminster for an adult education dialogue shortly after he retired several years ago. I took a seminar from Christopher on the early writings of Karl Barth, a 20th century Swiss theologian who was influenced by Luther and Calvin and Kierkegaard. Among the books that we read was Barth's commentary on the epistle to the Romans. Now, reading Karl Barth is never a completed task. And for many, it is wisely never a begun task. <laughs> But for those who are able to stick with it, his ideas and images often have the immediate, have immediate impact like poetry and long-term effect like philosophy. Now, handwritten notes that I made in Bart's commentary, here's the book, 
1976, you know, when I bought it. The cover's no longer on it, so they it's still together. Books you buy now after five years are coming apart, but this one's still together. But the handwritten notes I made on this book reveal that I read a passage that whose impact on me at the time was not significant. I underlined a few words, but, you know, no, no long, uh, thoughtful comments. Yet sometime, about 20 years later, in the 1990s, this passage became significant for me. The biblical verse on which Bart was commenting was one that Whitney read earlier. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God. Now, Bard entitled his comments on this passage, Positive Possibilities. They are found on page 451 of this commentary, hence the sermon title today. I spent the better part of yesterday trying to rephrase Bart's comments for you, but I realized that in rephrasing them, I had stretched them to about three times their length. So I, deci- so I gave up, and I decided to just share this one paragraph with you. I have enclosed a copy of it in your bulletin. That's the reason you got this insert. Now, I don't necessarily expect you to follow along with this reading. And so if you want to, I am giving you absolute permission to just zone out. (laughs) It'll take about three and a half to four minutes. You will not be tested on this, and I will not be offended But after this three or four minutes, you know, we'll wake you up and get you back and sort of make an application. So here are Bart's words. The phrase positive ethics means that volition or will and action which constitute a negation of the form of this world. A behavior that which contradicts the world's erotic or selfish course and protests against the world's great error. Properly speaking, Bart says, positive ethics belongs only to the volition and action of God. Absolute Positive, ethical, human, volition, and action, which which genuinely protest against the world's selfishness, lie beyond our knowledge. We do, however, know a relative positive human behavior which, although it belongs to the human possibilities of this world, and although it is marked, as indeed all human possibilities are marked, by the form of this world, nevertheless possesses, even in its present form, 
by virtue of the imperishable and primary constitution of the universe, a parabolic capacity, a tendency towards protest, an inclination of enmity against eros. We must, however, be careful about how we express this. We may find it easier to regard some kinds of human behavior as being more pregnant with parabolic significance than others. We may, for example, choose love over hatred. Certain particular human possibilities may appear to be more closely related to the divine disturbance and transformation than others are. It may seem to us more probable that we should attain to that sacrifice, that demonstration to the honor of God, within the framework of a particular series of concrete actions. More probable, that is to say, that we should be able to fulfill the four commandments written on the first tablet, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make for thyself an idol. These four. If we do so, having first fulfilled the commandments written on the second table, do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not covet. But when we say easier, more closely and more probable, we mean that the ethical necessity of even these particular kinds of human conduct does not lie in their matter. For materially they belong to this world, but rather in their form. That is to say, in their primal origin that oneness of the subject of the action. In other words, God. Barth then says that the possibility from time to time God may be honored in concrete human behavior which contradicts the commandments of the second table must therefore be left open. You have done well. Congratulations. You've now read Karl Barth. You get a medal for the day, and you can go home and sleep all afternoon if you would like. In 2014, when Christopher Morris retired, I was asked to write an article for the Union Seminary Quarterly Review about the impact that his teaching had on me, one of his students who had become a pastor. Here's what I said at the time. Certainly people in the parish, I said, myself included, find relief in the idea that some of our behaviors might be more parabolically close to the will of God than others. As a pastor in a denomination in which understandings of sexual orientation, in which attitudes about marriage and divorce in which norms about sexual behavior and its relationship to marriage have been changing during my lifetime. 
the idea that one could be honoring God even if one violates or accepts a violation of one of the commandments of the second table is thought-provoking. In addition, I said, as a pastor who has served in a congregation in which many people work in arenas of military service, defense, national security, diplomacy, that possibility is hopeful and challenging. It opens the door to ethical decision-making that may initially contradict moral and religious principles, yet ultimately prove to be responsible. This is life-giving to many, given the complex moral choices they face in specific situations with restraints concerning time and options. If both Bart and Luther are correct, such spiritual freedom represents a tremendous investment on the part of God in each of us as an individual. But it is that freedom and that sense of God's investment in our individual freedom that makes me a Christian. It is that freedom that makes me a Protestant. It is that freedom that leads me in my own ethical decision-making to rely on my faith, on prayer, on relationships in the Christian community, on the scriptures, and ultimately on my own conscience in my relationship with God. And it is that freedom that leads me to respect and praise so many of you who continue to ask, what is the responsible thing that honors God in the world, in our nation, in our community, in our church, in our family, in our personal life? When I share in or witness such conversations among you, I know that I am in the priesthood of all believers. I know that I am among people who see their secular work as Christian vocation. I know that I am among people who value the scriptures and who genuinely believe that God has placed the scriptures in our hands. And I know that I am among people who will at times so know their own consciences that they will say, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. So on this 500th anniversary of the Reformation, it is the spiritual freedom that I experience and see in you and in our tradition for which I am grateful. Amen.